Good after, sorry, good morning. My name is Cheryl and I will be your conference operator today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to the Littler's Workplace Policy Institute conference call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. After the speaker's remarks, there, there will not be a question and answer period today. All lines will remain on mute. If you do require any assistance, you can press star zero. At this time, I would like to introduce Michael Lotito, co-chair of Littler's Workplace Institute, and you may begin your conference. Thank you, Cheryl, and good morning, everyone, and welcome to today's Insider Briefing Call. As Cheryl said, my name is Michael Lotito. I'm the co-chair of Littler's Workplace Policy Institute in Washington, D.C., and thank you, everyone, for calling in this morning. While the insider briefing is typically an off-the-record, press-free conference call, this morning we are welcoming a member of the Fourth Estate to the insider briefing for the very first time. And our very special guest is Mary Kissel, member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board in New York City. She is also host of Opinion Journal on Wall Street Journal Live. From 2005 to 2010, Mary was the editorial page editor of the Wall Street Journal Asia, based in Hong Kong. She joined the journal in Hong Kong in 2004 as a writer of the money and investing sections heard in Asia column. And previously, she worked for Goldman Sachs, an investment bank, as you all know, in New York and in London. Mary has written extensively on economic, employment, and labor topics for the journal. And this past week marked the 125th anniversary of the Wall Street Journal, which published its very first edition on July 8, 1889. So we're very pleased to be hosting Mary today. Mary, welcome to the Insider Briefing Call. No, thanks for having me, Michael. And we're very happy to still be here 125 years uh, after our founding. We had a great celebration here in New York. Well, you had a great uh, cover of the paper. I, I thought I was going to have to get uh, uh, different spectacles in order to read it. <laughs> I opened it up, and I saw the, the journal that I was accustomed to. I, I hope I look as good as you do when I'm 125. <laughs> Well, again, we're, we're we're really delighted to be here. We've weathered, weathered some pretty big uh, ups and downs in the markets, and uh, uh, happy to say that the journal is still the the largest circulation newspaper in the United States. So we are going very strong here. That's the way I start my day every day. So let me start by saying congratulations on your 125th anniversary. The journal's editorial page has long stood for free markets and free people, and indeed. That was the focus of the editorial that you had on your birthday. Where do free markets and free people stand today in your estimation? Well, I think overall you'd have to say it's a very challenging time on on both fronts. I think I, I, to break it up into the two pieces and just to start with the, the market part first, uh, here in, in this country, the world's largest economy, we've had a great liberal experiment over the last six years. Um, we have spent uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in stimulus funding. We have expanded uh, the federal government in an effort to uh, stimulate the demand side of the economy. And what we've seen is that that effort has not worked. In fact, it's 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 really been a failure. Um, to, to have 2% growth in the fifth year of recovery uh, is, is really horrible. And I think if you want to read a little bit more about this, I'd recommend to everybody uh, to 
wanted to take a look at the writing of Casey Mulligan. He's an economist at the University of Chicago, and he's written a lot about how these redistribution efforts um, have impeded and retarded this recovery. Uh, moving over to Europe, uh, Europe really had a false debate. Um, uh, when you read the press about uh, how Europe dealt uh, with its financial crisis, uh, it was always uh, characterized as, uh, you know, austerity measures versus stimulus measures. Well, the word growth doesn't figure in there at all. Um, austerity is what Japan tried for 20 years, where they cut the budget, but they didn't pare back uh, the the uh, the red tape and the very complex tax system that were impeding growth. So what we've seen in Europe over the last couple of years are the same dynamics that we saw in Japan. Uh, over the last 20, and I think the the market tumble that you saw last week really re- reflected that worry because I think a lot of market participants are saying, wait a second, we're relying on Mario Draghi at the ECB to keep inflating these economies, but when when you look at the fundamentals, they they haven't focused on on growth, they haven't focused on allowing the private sector to to really. Uh, innovate and take risks and, 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 and hire and fire people easily. And, and that's why I think you're seeing the same kind of growth dynamics there as you are in the United States. You know, moving over to Asia on the market side, uh, Xi Jinping, as you recall, if you go back and you look at the front pages of the New York Times or the Washington Post, Mr. Xi was uh, pitched as a reformer. This was a younger man. Uh, he w- wasn't part of the revolutionary generation of China, and he, he was supposed to be the guy that was really going to move China into this century uh, and integrate China with the world. But what we're beginning to understand about Mr. Xi is that uh, he is – uh, very much to the contrary, maybe starting to build the kind of cult of personality that we saw under Mao. And so you don't see the kind of market reforms there that China really needs. And China is a very important driver of the world economy. You don't, you see no new trade agreements. There's no liberalization of savings or uh, the capital account. If you're a Chinese citizen, you're very limited uh, as to, to where you can uh, deploy your money. Um, so, uh, you know, there's, there's, yes, China has made a lot of gains, but many of those gains are due to the gains, the easy gains that they got after they joined the World Trade Organization. So they're kind of living off past reforms. Uh, the only kind of bright spots that we see uh, are Canada to our northern border, which has taken on tax reform and has been very frugal in their spending, but they've, they've also welcomed immigration and trade. Um, Japan, the third arrow of, of Mr. Abe's reforms, which is really the only important uh, aspect of the three reforms that he announced. I mean, this is this is the key. Can he can he really liberalize that labor market and get the world's third largest economy going? If he can, that that would be a terrific development. And the last kind of bright spot there on the market side is, of course, India under Narendra Modi. Um, India has never lived up to its potential as the kind of innovative, uh, open economy that it it could be. Um, Modi has a very big mandate, and that is something that we're keeping a very close eye on. The budget that came out last week, we were happy with it. We didn't think it went far enough, but it's certainly moving in the right direction. Um, but, you know, on the economy side, uh, certainly a challenging, very, very challenging time for free markets. On the political side, the free people side, 
I think it's important to keep things in perspective. I mean, recall back at the beginning of the 20th century, there were only 10 democracies in the world. Even as recently as 1974, you only saw 30 countries that were democracies, whereas today it's well upwards of 100. I think it's around 115, 117, something like that. So the world has made great progress when it comes to free people, but that progress is not permanent. And we've seen what has happened in Ukraine uh, with uh, uh, Vladimir Putin pushing into Crimea, with America really doing nothing and abrogating the security treaty that we had with them. We see uh, what was really a secure and stable Iraq in 2009. In fact, so secure and stable, you know, Vice President Biden was on television uh, boasting about it. Uh, now, uh, seeing much of its territory taken over by this terrorist group, ISIS. Uh, and, and, you know, there are a lot of Sunnis in, in that area that love democracy. We're very happy under a stable uh, system that we had back in 2009, and now they are suffering. Um, so these gains are not stable. They are not permanent. They have to be fought for. They have to be defended, um, both militarily but also rhetorically. So free markets, free people, uh, very challenging time, Michael. Holy cow, what a uh, whirlwind uh Overview. Thanks for that. But let's let's come home. Let's come to the United States. You've, you mentioned um, hiring, firing, immigration. We've had five monthly job reports in a row of more than 200,000. Um, but economic growth, as you said, at 2 percent is is stagnant. We had a horrible first quarter, which most people, I guess, attribute to uh, to the weather. Wages are predominantly flat, at least at the lower end although we're seeming to get some wage inflation at the higher end. The labor market participation rate is at a generational low in that 62% range. How do you read all of these different tea leaves? Where, where do you think that we, that we stand? Is this a good or a bad economy? It's a, it's a muddling economy, um, and it is a very odd recovery for some of the reasons that you mentioned. We never have recoveries where wages do not bounce back. Um, really, for mo much of the American public, they don't feel that this is a recovery precisely because their wages are not rising. And now you add on the layer of inflation that we're starting to see in food and energy, and, and that kills whatever wage increases that that vast bulk of the American economy saw. Um, I, you know, I always go back to what's possible. What does what a good recovery look like? Um, look at the Reagan recovery, 1983, 4.6%. 4. 1984, we had 7.3%, so that was the, the height of it. But Still, 85. You had 4.2, 86, three and a half. So, you know, think about those those four years. That's that's really shows you the kind of bounce back that uh, that we generally have when we get out of the way and you let the economy uh, do the repair work that it needs to do. Compare that to the Obama recovery. I'll give you a couple of numbers: 2010, two and a half percent; 2011, 1.8; 2012, 2.6; uh, 13, 1.9. percent percent. So you're looking at uh, a, a huge differential here. You're talking three to four percentage points. And these just aren't, these aren't just percentage points and numbers. You know, you're talking about real effects, particularly on the low and middle income wage earners. Now, yes, it's true. We have pockets of good news, but the 
pockets of good news are all in areas that government doesn't dominate. Think about energy. Think about what's going on in Silicon Valley. If you if you stripped out uh, the 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 gains that were made in the states that have this energy revolution going on, North Dakota, Texas, Oklahoma, uh, you don't see much growth at all. Uh, what are the areas where, where we have very poor services that are really doing terribly um, in, in terms of uh, cost? Well, healthcare, education, it's everything that government dominates. Uh, so, you know, overall, we have a very bifurcated economy. A, a couple of those areas that are just outstanding performers, and the rest kind of kind of muddling along. Um, so, uh, you know, I think the question is. Um, you know, when are we going to get a good economy? And I would commend uh, an interview I did on Friday with our Business World columnist, Holman Jenkins. We titled it, Are We Ever Going to See Economic Growth? Uh, and, and Holman's point was, well, you know, yes, we have, we've had these five months of good jobs numbers, but if you look at the underlying indicators, um, household formation, uh, new starts, young people entering the workforce, you know, those numbers are not encouraging. You know, you said, when are we going to have economic growth? I have another question along the same lines. When are we ever going to get immigration reform? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> uh, well, the Wall Street Journal editorial page has been advocating not just for for free markets and free people. That, that also, you can add a third, it's free, free, free labor markets. Um, I guess that goes into the free people uh, section there. Um, we have been pushing this boulder up the hill for literally decades. Um, unfortunately, uh, there are two two players in the immigration debate in America today. There's the president, and there's the uh, the GOP-led House. And the president uh, has very rightly said, uh, "It's time for immigration reform. I want to have it." Uh, but then he doesn't go to the House and do the kind of hard work of convincing members and you know establishing relationships and putting some of his own political capital line to, on the line to actually get it uh, over the finish line. It's something he's never liked to do. There's no reason to expect he would have done it with this. Uh, we've never seen him do it before. We, we, he didn't see him do it with tax reform. Why would we see him do it with immigration or with budget reform? On the other side, you have the House GOP, where you have House leadership that understands that we need immigration reform for several reasons, but primarily because it's good for the country, because immigrant, we are, number one, an immigrant nation, but number two, every serious economic study shows you that labor goes to its best uses, so just like money does. So you will always have waves of immigration when our economy is doing better on a relative basis than our neighbors. And again, I'd commend you to the editorial page. We had a big editorial in last week paper on uh, uh, the, the better border crisis solution that talked about these trends. So the immigrants will always come. We want them. We have labor shortages in this country on the low end in agriculture. Just Google labor market shortage California into Google, and you'll see lots of stories come up about all the agriculture uh, uh, operations that need workers. And we also have labor shortages on the high end in things like IT and engineering. We need people to work in the energy boom, and we just don't have that talent. So the House GOP leadership understands that. They understand the economics of it. The problem is that you have a very vocal minority of the Republican Party that is nativist, Jeff Sessions, uh, uh, Ted Cruz. Uh, and, and these guys occupy, have a lot of bandwidth on cable TV and talk radio. 
and they whip them up into a frenzy. Uh, these people are quote unquote taking our jobs. It's all of the you know the the same rhetoric that we've seen really since our founding. With every wave of new immigrants, the, the immigrants who are always here don't want the new guys to to come in. Um, now, if the GOP were smart, they would say. Um, let's do something with the president now, and we can claim victory. It's good. For, first of all, it's the right thing to do. But secondly, um, it, it, it shows us working in a bipartisan way. Um, and thirdly, politically, it helps them with Hispanic groups, which they really have a problem with uh, of late. On the, the Democratic side, um, well, this plays to the base. They have a large portion of uh, Hispanic immigrants. These are the, the, the largest number of immigrants that we're seeing. Um, but the problem is 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 uh, is that many Republicans don't trust the president to do what he says, uh, and you see that, for example, in the 3.7 billion dollar supplemental bill that uh, the president is trying to pass this uh, this week uh, to help deal with this flood of immigrant children. Um, that should be a layup in any other circumstance. So it really speaks to how fraught the relationship is between the House and the executive branch, where they can't even trust each other enough to deal with tens of thousands of immigrant children, which I think most Americans would want to be dealt with in a humane and a compassionate way. So I'm afraid that uh, the, this vocal minority in the Republican Party, the nativist wing, is going to stall on immigration reform. The president will do something, perhaps by executive action, and we will go to November with the Democrats saying, um, see, Hispanic community, we care about you. Um, the, the Republicans do not, pointing to this vocal minority, and that will be the politics of it. And as a result, the country suffers because we don't get the kind of broad-based immigration reform that we need to deal with this inevitable flow of people that will come here. They will find a way to come here if our economy does well relative to our neighbors. Well, let me just ask you uh one more question. Um, I've got a lot of different uh, passions on immigration and some of the things that we've talked about, but you know, what we're all about is workplace policy, and um, we find ourselves spending 24-7 talking about workplace policy. And Sometimes uh, I wonder if I'm talking to myself um, <laughs> because I, I see so many things happening whether it's the NLRB quickie elections or the joint employer issue or what the EOC is up to in the Department of Labor initiatives with Secretary Wild and the overtime, and the list goes on and on and on. And I didn't even mention OFCCP. But sometimes I feel like we're talking to ourselves. Does, does workplace policy, does workplace regulation, does this matter to CEOs? Is this, is this something that they engage on, that they're aware of? And does it impact the behavior of their company? Well, two, two points to make on this. First of all, most CEOs don't care until they get sued. And it, and it, and it threatens their, uh, the, the, their operations or their bottom line. The second point to make about this, of what we've seen here at the editorial page, is that most CEOs whom we meet are very self-confident individuals. They run large operations, very complex operations, and they think they can handle it, that they can convince uh, government, be it the Department of Justice or some of the enforcement agencies like the EEOC that you mentioned, they can convince these guys of their good intentions and they can settle the case and then move on. And what they don't appreciate is that many of these cases are political by nature. So Company X is not getting sued because Company X did something wrong. It's that the EEOC thinks that they can set a new legal precedent by, by uh, threatening Company X with a lawsuit. 
and they want Company X to pay, let's say, $500 million, or um, they're happy to sue Company X in court for the next 10 years because they think Company X will set a legal precedent that they can then use to intimidate uh, uh, other companies and to extract uh, settlements out of other companies. So you have to approach these cases in that fashion. And for some companies, it's worth it to talk to people like us where we're writing editorials and explaining these dynamics behind the cases. For other companies, it's not worth it. And they say, I'll pay you $5 million. I don't care what happens to my competitor down the road. That's his problem. It's not my problem. But I just point you to the Citibank settlement that was announced this morning. We have seen a series of shakedowns of our banks. Does anybody really believe believe that institutional investors, sophisticated institutional investors, did not know the risks of subprime mortgages when they were buying them, or that Fannie and Freddie didn't understand what they were selling. Of course they did. But now you see governments so linked to these big banks that they can go to the banks and they'll say, we'll call you racists uh, uh, or uh, criminals if you don't pay us $5 billion. So the banks look at their bottom line, and they say, okay, we'll pay you, we'll move on. Look at the comments of Jamie Dimon when he settled up with the government in these last weeks, and look at the comments of Citigroup this morning. So you know, my word of warning to the CEOs is be clear-eyed about what's really going on. Are you really a bad actor, or are you being used for a, a larger purpose? And approach those cases uh, with that understanding. Mary, thanks so much for helping us all be clear-eyed uh, with your insights. Uh, we really appreciate your comments. I could talk to you forever, uh, but unfortunately, the insider briefing call has to come to an end so people can move on with their day. So we thank you very, very much for joining us, and hopefully you'll come back again. Thanks so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. Now I'll turn it over to uh, Michael Lehman, the manager of the Workplace Policy Institute at Littler, uh, for some concluding remarks. Michael. Thank you, Michael and Mary. And looking ahead to the week in Washington, here are some things to be aware of. Uh, the House and Senate are both in session uh, this week. On Wednesday, July 16th, the House Budget Committee will hold a hearing on the long-term budget outlook at 10 a.m. again on Wednesday. And the U.S. Senate Finance Committee will hold a hearing on Thursday this week entitled The Role of Trade and Technology in 21st Century Manufacturing. Uh, again, that's on Thursday at 10 a.m. If you have any questions about employment and labor law or policy, Contact us, and you can be connected to a subject matter expert like Michael here at Littler. Thanks for joining the Insider Briefing this morning. Our thanks again to Mary Kissel. We'll see you next Monday morning at 9.30 a.m. Eastern. Have a great week, everybody. This concludes today's conference call. You may now disconnect.